I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I have a younger brother whom I often thought was my parents' favorite. Why? Because he made them laugh. He made us all laugh. Now, I lived in a world where occasionally we got spanked. And when he was going to be spanked, he put a magazine down his pants. And Dad laughed so hard that he never did get that spanking. He had a way of getting things from our parents that the rest of us never mastered. It was him that talked us into buying Mom and Dad a Monopoly game for Christmas, when it was really the rest of us who wanted that. He usually got the car whenever he wanted and mom even often gave him a credit card. I may be exaggerating a little, but he was the kind of person you wanted to help succeed, and he has. And yet he possesses a lightness of being that overshadows his wonderful sensitivity. And this lightness of being often finds its way into generosity. He and his spouse are the ones that took us to Scotland and England for our 50th wedding anniversary, for us a trip of a lifetime. They helped us buy our home. Our extended family has wonderful times together at his lovely summer cottage in the Caribou. We love getting together there, almost 40 of us. And he has all the toys, and anyone can use them. Now, he's not perfect by any means, but you can't help but notice him. And the beauty is that he can still make us laugh. He can often make his adult children laugh or spouse laugh, even when they're upset with him. And he can turn children's tears into giggles. Now, he's a bit of a tease. Growing up, his nickname, and it still is, was The Dink. And it doesn't mean double income, no kids. He was a Vancouver police officer at one time. And when I went to visit him at the police station in Vancouver, and I don't know how many hundreds of policemen they have, but I asked for him by name at the front desk, and the receptionist said, Oh, you mean the dink. Even my mother called him that. And for us, it was usually a term of endearment. Now, if you have siblings, I'm guessing that there were times where you or your siblings made comments or had thoughts about who was your parents' favorite. And even as adults, my siblings tease one another about who was the favorite. And in our best moments, it's a tease. In our worst moments, it sometimes is a bit of a serious temptation. Now, if you were a single child, if you were an only child, Your dynamics are a little different. In the best moments, you knew that you were the favorite. And in your worst moments, you carried all the expectations of your parents. There was no older sibling to train your parents for you. How can you tell I'm the oldest and take credit for that one? Now, if you were from a conflicted home, you likely found yourself longing for a home like one of your friends. We all desperately want to be special, and we all want to be loved. And yet, letting yourself be loved can be risky. And sometimes our experience of that love is analyzed in comparison to the love we see others receiving. 
we don't easily see love as unconditional. However, I don't think that we can love unconditionally unless we find a way to let ourselves be loved unconditionally. And yet loving, letting yourself be loved unconditionally takes a lot of faith, a lot of trust. So for me, this is some of the mental, emotional, and relational tension I see in our gospel reading today. It portrays how we all want to be special and are, and yet it demonstrates how we compare our specialness to other people's specialness. We are tempted to make our belovedness competitive and comparative. And Jesus was no exception. He too was tempted to see his belovedness as competitive and comparative. And in our text, it is this connection between his baptism and his temptations in the wilderness that show us or demonstrate this to us. In our text, the stories are inseparable. They're totally joined together, especially in Mark. And if you have been part of our Lenten meditation, I want to repeat something you will have already read there. Jesus' 40-day temptation happens right after his baptism, almost before it's over. It's as if the spirit that drove him, the word is literally chucked him, tossed him into the wilderness, immediately after he was told that he was loved. It's like the Spirit is saying, I really love you, now go to your room and think about it. And at first blush, this seems very counterintuitive. Extraordinary things, miraculous things were happening. There was a cosmic split. A spirit descends like a dove. And a voice proclaims that you are my beloved. I'm really pleased with you. So then why be chucked into the wilderness for 40 days right after that? Wouldn't it make more sense to jump right into your ministry after such an amazing affirmation? While everyone was in awe of everything that was happening after a supernatural ordination? Start ministry now while we have all this momentum. But no, the Spirit through drove him into the wilderness among wild things, evil forces, and yes, angels, always angels. But angels can be hard to see amidst wild things and evil forces. So before we reflect on this story and our own temptations, let's look a little bit at the three temptations of Jesus as recorded in Matthew and Luke. Mark's text doesn't tell us about them. There were three. The temptation to turn stones into bread. The temptation to jump from the highest point of the temple and have the angels catch you. And the temptation to power. Henri Nouwen reflects on these, two, on these three temptations. He says the temptation to turn stones into bread is the temptation to be relevant. But I find myself asking, what's wrong with being relevant? And the temptation to jump off of the highest point of the temple and have the angels catch you, he says, is the temptation to be spectacular. You'll get on TV. But what's wrong with being spectacular? And the temptation to worship Satan is a temptation of power. 
But what's wrong with a little bit of power? In our culture, relevance, spectacle, and power give you influence. And for Jesus, the call or push to the wilderness brought a humble awareness of what being the beloved really means. Does it mean that I'm especially special? Or does that mean that I'm special but not exclusive? Is my belovedness inclusive or exclusive? And the fact that Christ withstands the temptation to be especially irrelevant, especially spectacular, or especially powerful demonstrates most clearly that his belovedness led to an increasing inclusivity rather than an increasing exclusiveness. In his own belovedness, he recognized the spirit of belovedness in all things, in all of humanity, in all of creation, all of the ever-expanding universe of the divine. Now, for many of us, thinking we are loved exclusively has led us to agendas like slavery, missionary colonialism, crusades, complacency about racial and economic privilege, and a myriad of conspiracy theories. And our agendas, when we think exclusively, propagate our fears about other people, their competing agendas. And if we think we're loved exclusively, we better destroy those other agendas just go out and storm the capital. Being loved and letting yourself be loved inclusively may lead to a new awareness of the systemic realities in the world that we have blindly found religious justification for, any kind of us and them thinking. The temptation is, I will use my belovedness to promote my own agenda. Or I will serve my belovedness, or will I serve my belovedness as a divine calling to love everything, even my enemies. Now this is tough. To love this way could get you killed. You will suffer. And that's what the desert experience is reminding us of. This is what it means to take up our cross. You must die to your own ego and its tendency towards exclusivity. You must live to yourself in God towards the possibility of inclusivity. Thomas Merton puts it, this inclusivity this way. He says, in order to become myself, I must cease to be what I always thought I wanted to be. And in order to find myself, I must go out of myself. And in order to live I have to die. Be careful, he warns, if you're thinking of making friends with the Holy Spirit, because he's going to ask you to die. In John's baptism, Jesus was immersed into an environment where it was hard to breathe, an underwater world where loving was surrounded by suffering. But in being raised out of the water, he was reminded that he would be resurrected into a world where breathing was always easy, a world without pain and suffering. We die to self, we rise to newness of life. 
This newness of life is eternal and free of suffering. Sounds like heaven to me. And our exclusive temptation is to construct that world for ourselves now, exclusively. But it never works. And so we avoid, we deny, or we anesthetize our suffering, or we just blame it on others. And so the desert becomes a symbol of solitude. Solitude is a great test of our belovedness. Why? Because at first we tend to experience it as loneliness. The desert experience invites us to persist in our solitude rather than avoid the loneliness. And Henri Nouwen suggests that solitude is first of all a place of mourning. That's why it's so hard. A place where we mourn about the things in our lives that haven't turned out the way we had hoped. The places where we don't feel relevant, spectacular, or powerful. The key, he says, is to stay in that solitude long enough to genuinely mourn those losses, to baptize ourselves in them as a way to begin to let go. And if we do that persistently, he says, we will hear something counterintuitive right in the midst of that mourning we will hear a voice that says, you are my beloved. I'm really pleased with you. And now he says we are ready to enter community, which he describes as a beloved greeting another beloved. No comparison or competition here. And this kind of community, he says, will always lead to serving. Loving because we are loved. So solitude makes us aware of whether our love will be exclusive or inclusive. If it is inclusive, we will suffer some pain and suffering and disappointment. If it is exclusive, we will try to avoid the pain, suffering, or blame it on someone else. And so this Easter journey is reminding us to love this way is often to suffer. Jesus didn't come to take away our suffering. Jesus came to suffer with us. That's what the incarnation is. And continually remind us that we are loved to take up our cross and know that we are loved. Sigmund Freud said, we are never so defenseless against suffering as when we love. Never so forlornly unhappy as when we have lost our love object or its love. And the great neurotic philosopher Woody Allen said, To love is to suffer. To avoid suffering, one must not love. But then one suffers for not loving. Therefore, to love is to suffer. And not to love is to suffer. To suffer is to suffer. To be happy is to love. To be happy then is to suffer. But suffering makes one unhappy. Therefore, to be happy, one must love or love to suffer or suffer from too much happiness. I hope you're getting this down, he says. So I want to invite us to be careful. When you hear that someone has a special anointing or gift from God, that is exclusively theirs. Exclusivity is about a this-world agenda. It's about ego. Inclusivity is about a divine agenda, love. 
So yes, God loves me uniquely, but not exclusively. God loves you uniquely, but not exclusively. God loves everything in God's creation uniquely, but not exclusively. And sometimes it seems to me like the rest of creation knows this and just does what it was created to do or be. Richard Rohr suggests that everything in creation does what it was created to do and be, except us humans. He says that we are the only creatures that refuse our own flowering, that forget that we are uniquely loved and competitively tries to create some kind of exclusivity. God loves uniquely, and God loves his son uniquely, but not exclusively. And nothing demonstrates that more than the incarnation and the crucifixion. It's God's nature to love uniquely, but it's God's choice to not love exclusively. It's as if God is saying, I don't just love you, I really like you. So was Jesus relevant, spectacular, and powerful? Not in a worldly or in an ego terms. He was a poor, itinerant preacher, teacher, healer, in a culture that was full of prophetic messiahs. Being relevant, spectacular, and powerful did not really emerge until after he died. And our epistle in 1 Peter talks about this emergence. It was through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. These things were not there for him in his lifetime. They were his legacy, seen mostly in hindsight. His ego sacrificed these temptations in his lifetime and freed him up to let himself be loved and then to form genuine relationships. For those that knew him, he was loved and he was beloved. And he summed this all up when he said, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Or as another translation puts it, what good would it do to get everything you want and lose lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? But that's next week's gospel reading. So let yourself be loved. And when life feels like it has tossed you into the wilderness, Notice the wild things. Notice the forces of evil. Even speak against them and act against them. But always contemplate your baptism, the eternal place where you are called the beloved. And then you will notice the angels who are there to feed your soul. Amen.